first chapter, 1 Timothy 1. If you'll focus your attention on the 15th and the 16th verse. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Good morning. It is good to see everybody this morning. Glad that uh, we can be together. We've got several who are ill and not with us today and some who are traveling, but uh, it is good that we can be here together uh, this morning. I am adding something new to the evangelism table, and I want to go through it just a little bit this morning in our time of study. Uh, I love the evangelism table. I love the having uh, materials there that you can grab and we can take and we can use to study with people. I have told you before that uh, my preference, if I'm going to sit down and have a, a one-on-one Bible study, I like to use back to the Bible. I think it's effective. I think it does a good job. I like the simplicity of it. I'm a pretty simple-minded person, and so I like to have it in front of me and in front of them. And you just look at a verse, and you answer a question, and it kind of walks you through uh, the plan of salvation and the church and a lot of different things. And I love to use it. But I, uh, I came across something new. I have created this myself, but I did so after hearing a sermon, uh, Brother Aaron Gallagher. Some of you might be familiar with Brother Aaron. He works with Gospel Broadcasting Network. And he, uh, he presented a sermon on the conversion of Saul. And so I decided I was going to go through Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22. And I've created uh, just a very simple handout uh, that you can sit down and you can use to study with people. And I think it can be a very effective tool. What I want you to do with me this morning, though, is uh, you can take this. I would encourage you to sit down with your husband, with your wife, with a friend, with your children. Go through and study this, and I think it can be very helpful. But what I want you to do this morning as we study the conversion of Saul is to maybe make some notes in the margin of your Bible. I think if you go through and study the conversion of Saul, that you can, you can walk into a coffee shop, you can walk into some place and you can see somebody reading their Bible and you can walk up and you say, you know what, I see you're studying your Bible, reading your Bible. Have you ever thought about this and just walk through the, the conversion of Saul? It's very simple and I think very effective. What I like about the conversion of Saul is that it, it touches on a lot of different uh, things that people will say about their conversion and you can just compare it to what the Bible says. Now, as I begin this morning, I want you to think about this. Brother Jim read for us a moment ago from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And I want you to notice there in verse number 16 that Paul says, you can underline it, you can use me as a pattern. That God chose me, that Jesus, through Jesus, I can be a pattern for those who will believe on Him 
for everlasting life. Paul says there's a pattern here, and if you can follow the pattern, it is for all who will ever believe on Jesus for everlasting life. Pattern theology is taught throughout the pages of Scripture. God has always gone back to a pattern. That's very important for me to know. I go back to Cain and Abel. And I know from reading of of Scripture that there had to be a pattern that God had given Cain and Abel for their, their worship. And I know from reading passages in Scripture, even from the New Testament, that Abel followed the pattern that God had prescribed and Cain decided not to follow the pattern and God respected Abel and his offering and he did not respect Cain and his offering. Why? Because Cain chose not to follow the pattern. Well, it's very simple to see in Noah, isn't it? It's very simple to know that God gave Noah a pattern for building the ark. Noah, this is exactly the way that I want it done. I want you to follow the pattern. I want it to be so long and so wide and so tall. I want it to have so many decks. I want it to have one door and I want it to have one window and I want it to be made of a certain kind of wood and I want you to follow the pattern. And Noah did. And God was pleased. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, priest of God, decided not to follow the pattern. They decided not to follow the pattern of prescribed worship. They decided that they they would offer profane fire, fire which God had not authorized, and God was not pleased because they did not follow the pattern. I'm simply saying... That God has, has really uh, always given a pattern. You think about the tabernacle in Moses. And, and it gets mundane sometimes to read all of that. And all of the dimensions. And all of the different materials. And exactly the way that God wanted it to be built. But the Bible says that Moses built it according to the pattern. Paul says, there's a pattern here. If you'll follow my conversion, you can be saved. I'm not interested in anything but going to heaven. I'm telling you. I just want to go to heaven. I want to help other people go to heaven. And you'll be my friend if you'll show me the pattern. You'll be my friend if you can just show me what the Bible says. If we can just look at the pattern of how Paul was saved, then we're going to know something about it. So in my conversations with people over the years, I have heard objections to baptism. Most people will come to believe in Jesus and that being necessary for them to be saved. A lot of people will say, yes, it is absolutely necessary for me to make some kind of confession of my faith in Jesus as the Son of God. They'll agree with that. In my experience over the years, most people will agree that repentance is necessary for one to be saved, that they need to turn away from sinful behavior and change their lives and live according to to the will of God. And repentance is necessary. But over the years, I have come across many people who will say, all of those things are necessary, but baptism is not. Objections. Let me turn over to Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true? Paul said it's true. Am I going to argue with that? Absolutely not. Is faith necessary for me to be justified? Yes. Is it necessary for me to be at peace with God? Yes. Paul says it. I believe it. I'm not going to go against it. So someone comes up to me and says, Hey, Adam, look, 
Romans 5 and verse 1 says that faith is what justifies, and so all I need is faith in order to be justified. Well, I could walk them through the book of Romans, and so could you. You could go to the bookends of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 5, Romans 16 and verse number 26, and you could talk about the obedience to the faith, and you could talk about what that obedience entails. You could walk them over to Romans chapter 6 and you could see what Paul has to say very plainly about baptism and what it does for us in Romans chapter 6. And, and so you could take them on a journey and show them the book, through the book of Romans what Paul has to say. You could do that. be nothing wrong with that. Or you could ask them a question. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul did. Well, why don't we just go back and see what Paul did to be saved? Because he's not going to teach something different than what he did. And so let's go back and see what Paul did. Well, that sounds reasonable to me. It sounds much more easy, right? It's, it's something you can do. Well, someone marches over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, and they say, look, by grace you have been saved. And so, look, all I need is the grace of God in order to be saved. And so I don't need to do anything. I don't need anything else. I just need the grace of God, and by the grace of God I am saved. Well, you could walk them through the book of Ephesians, and, and you could show them the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse number 5. You could walk them through the book of Ephesians, and you can talk about the church and Jesus being the head of the church, and you can talk about all spiritual blessings being found in Christ, Ephesians 1 and verse number 3, and you can certainly find the plan of salvation in the book of Ephesians. Or... You could ask this question. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul. I wonder what Paul did in order to be saved. If we can go back and see what Paul did to be saved, then we know that he's not going to teach anything different in the book of Ephesians. All right, you see where we're going. And you could go on and on. You could go to 1 Corinthians. I've had people go to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 17. And, and they'll say, well, look, Paul says that Christ did not send me to baptize. And so if Christ did not send Paul to baptize, then baptism must not be necessary. That's what they say. Well, I could walk them through the book of 1 Corinthians. I could take them over to chapter 12, and, and I could see that baptism is what puts us into the body of Christ. And you can see what Paul has to say about baptism throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and you can walk them through several things in 1 Corinthians. Or you could ask them this question. Who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, Paul did. I wonder what Paul did to be saved. Because Paul's not going to teach something different than what he did to be saved. And so if we can see what Paul did to be saved, then we can show what 1 Corinthians has to say. You see where I'm going? We can go back to the, to the conversion of Saul. I'm going to, you, you know he's called Saul. That's his Hebrew name. And then you know Paul is his Greek name. And, and I'm probably going to use Paul more than I use Saul. But we're talking about the same guy. And so I think it's important for us to go back and to just study for a, a little bit the conversion of Saul. How was Paul saved? How was he saved? And I think this can help us, and we're going to see many common objections to baptism and its necessity. It all comes up here in Acts chapter 9. Many questions can be answered. Many things can be examined as we look at this together. Begin reading with me in verse number 1 of Acts chapter 9. 
Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I understand that for most, if not all, sitting in the audience this morning, it's not the first time you've read Acts chapter 9. It's not the first time that you're going to consider the conversion of Saul. I'm asking you, though, to try your best to look at this with fresh eyes. To look at this from a perspective of sitting across the table from someone and just sitting down and going through it together, looking for a pattern. What does he do? What is he told? What, does he, what, what is it that he comes to realize that he must do in order to be saved? Now, for a moment, will you just uh, help me see this and, and look at this with me? In the margin of your Bible, will you make a note that from Jerusalem to Damascus was 140 miles? I mentioned this in Bible class recently, but you're looking at 140 miles. Now, you and I in West Texas, 70 miles an hour is nothing. All right, 70 miles an hour. Some of you drove 70 miles an hour to get here this morning, right? You, you, your car goes 70 miles an hour. If you were to drive from Jerusalem to Damascus, Driving 70 miles an hour, it's going to take you two hours. Pretty decent drive, right? Even in West Texas, decent drive, 70 miles an hour is going to take you two hours. That's on flat road, no curves, few hills, 70 miles an hour. Well, let me tell you, I've been through the Golan Heights. I have seen this terrain. It is not smooth. It is full of hills. It is not anything where you're going to drive, even today, you're not going to drive 70 miles an hour. It is going to be a trip. A lot of it is going to be uphill from Jerusalem to Damascus. And it is, it is a trek to get there. But in the days of Paul, hello. I mean, this is not an easy uh, ride. It's not an easy walk. It is treacherous. There is great terrain on this road to Damascus. I say all that to say, did Paul love God? Yes. He loved God. He was committed to God in his mind. His conscience, he says, bore, will bear witness that what he thought he was doing was absolutely the right thing to do. That getting rid of the name of Jesus was absolutely the thing to do. That he was willing to go to the extremes to eradicate the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. He was committed. He loved God. A very religious person, right? That's what I'm getting at. You've got a very religious person who is committed 
to God. Now, what do we find about this commitment? Well, what we find is it's all wrong. But I want you to see what he did. I want you to notice in verse number 4 that Paul recognizes the lordship of Jesus. As soon as he hears these vo- this voice out of the bright light, he, he falls to the ground. He asks the question, who are you? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I recognize there's something about you. Who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. Jesus identifies himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What's the next statement out of the mouth of Paul? Lord, what would you have me do? I am Jesus. Lord, what would you have me do? Does he recognize recognize the lordship of Christ? Yes. There are those today that I have sat across tables and study with, and they say, all I need to do is recognize Jesus as Lord. All I need to do is recognize Jesus for who he is. Did Paul do that? He sure did. Can I ask you, though? Is he saved yet? And the answer is no. No, recognizing Jesus as Lord did not save him. Is it necessary? Yes. Did it save him on its own? No. Because Jesus tells him, there is something you must do. Underline that in your Bible. Go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. So there was something that Paul had to do. Now again, I've sat across the table with very sincere people, people who love God, and they have said to me things like, Adam, I don't need to do anything. God takes care of this. I don't need to do anything. God is going to take care of this. I've had a feeling that I'm saved. Adam, I don't have to do anything. Then you're going to not follow the pattern of Paul because Paul had to do something. There's something you, underline it, must do. There's something I must do in order to be saved. Paul had to do something in order to be saved. So he's acknowledged the lordship of Jesus and he's been told that there is something that he has to do. Now I drop down to verse number 9 and this is important because the Bible says in verse number 9 that for three days he is without sight and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. Now I just put on my common sense hat, a little logic, and I wonder, what's Paul doing for three days while he's not eating and drinking? I wonder what's going through his mind. I wonder what is he contemplating? And again, I think a little logic, a little common sense can just help us a lot here. What's he come to Damascus to do? Destroy the name of Jesus. That's what he's come to do. Now Jesus has appeared to him. Jesus has spoken to him. Jesus has told him to go into the city and he will be told what he has to do. And a little common sense says that what Paul is doing for three days is showing great remorse. Right? Don't you think he has to be? I've had this all wrong. I thought I was doing the right thing, but it turns out I was not doing the right thing. I thought that I could get rid of the name of Jesus, and now I have recognized Him as Lord. God has spoken to me. 
I have not been doing right. I've got to change my life. I've looked across the table into the eyes of somebody who loved the Lord. And they have said to me something along the lines of, well, you know what? I, I've, I've repented. I have changed my life. And that's what I had to do in order to be saved. And when I changed my life, that was enough. When I made these changes in my life, God forgave me of all of that. And so that's what I had to do. If repentance could save anybody on its own, isn't it logical to conclude that Paul would have been saved at this point? Isn't it? If belief in Jesus were, were enough, wouldn't Paul already be saved? If confession of, of Christ as Lord is enough, wouldn't he already be saved? If repentance were enough on its own, wouldn't he already be saved? The question is, is he or is he not already saved? And how can we know? You see, there are objections that are, that are answered. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Paul has done all of those things. And yet he is still in his sin. He is not yet saved. All right, so I, I walk, walk them through that, right? That's not complicated. That's not difficult to see. And you just point out a few of these things and you help them to recognize what's going on in the conversion of Saul. Now, we, we go on and we look at verse number 10. The Bible says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Two more objections. Two more things that people will say. Two things that I have had people look at me in the eye, and they've said, Adam, I said a prayer. I said a prayer, maybe they'll call it the sinner's prayer, maybe they'll call it whatever they want, but Adam, I said a prayer, and I was saved. What do you think Paul's been doing for three days? Fasting, praying. Ananias, when you get into that house, you'll, you'll find a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he's praying. Is he saved? Did that prayer save him? Is he out of his sins yet? Questions that I need to know. I'm looking for a pattern. I'm trying to be honest with the Word of God. I'm trying to dismiss everything I've ever been taught, and I'm just trying to see the pattern. What's he doing to be saved? I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to be right so I can prove somebody else wrong. I'm just trying to get to heaven. What does he do? This really matters. It's extremely important. I'm not trying to have my doctrine to refute your doctrine. I'm looking for the truth. What's the truth? Where's the pattern? Paul is praying. For three days he is praying. You think about Paul's pedigree for a moment. You think about his writing in the New Testament concerning prayer. And you think about the, the number of times that Paul says... I'm praying for you, to brethren. I'm praying for the lost. 
I, I want you to pray for me. Did Paul recognize the power of prayer? This man is a Pharisee of Pharisees. These, this man, by all intents and purposes, had the majority of the Old Testament memorized. You think about the great prayers in the Old Testament. You think Paul could pray? I wish I could pray like Paul. For three days he is praying. I'm telling you, if anybody could be saved by prayer, it would have to have been Paul. And then you think about a miracle. I've sat across the table from folks and they've said, Adam, I know I'm saved because I had a miracle occur in my life. I've had a miracle occur in my life and, and that's how I know I'm saved. I know that God did this and He wouldn't have done that unless, uh, unless I was saved. I'm not going to get into a discussion with them at that moment about miracles. But let's just look at Paul for a minute. Can I just say that this whole context is miracle after miracle. I mean, he's, he's walking down a road just minding his own business and all of a sudden this bright light from heaven shines around him and blinds him. And he hears a voice from heaven call out to him. He hears the voice of Jesus. That sounds pretty miraculous to me. And then Jesus tells Ananias in verse number 12 that Paul has received a vision. And in this vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him, and, and he is able to receive his sight. That sounds miraculous to me, doesn't it you? A heavenly vision. Did it save him? Is he saved? Do you see all, all of the different things that are, are refuted in this context that people claim today? This is how I'm saved. This is what I did to be saved. Do you see how it refutes so many things that people say? I'm just looking for the truth. I'm just looking for the pattern. Well, we're almost through it now. But here's the recap. He's recognized Jesus as Lord. He's been told there's something he must do. Go into the city. It will be told you what you must do. He has spent three days fasting and praying. And he has received a miraculous vision from heaven. Is he saved? Is he out of his sins yet? And the answer is no. Now let's go on. Ananias has a, you know, what we would say justifiable apprehension. In uh, verse number 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You think Ananias hadn't heard that Paul was on his way? Yeah, the rumor was out. Paul's on his way. I've heard about this guy. But the Lord answered him in verse number 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias is hesitant to go, but Jesus says, Go. I want to be an evangelist like Ananias, don't you? I'm telling you, he doesn't get the recognition he deserves, but I want to love people the way that Ananias does. I want to love Jesus the way Ananias does. Ananias is hesitant within himself to go, but Jesus told him to go, and he went. I want to love the Lord like Ananias. I want to go reach someone who's lost the way Ananias wanted to. I want to be an evangelist like Ananias. 
I love him. So he goes in to Paul. In verse number 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he went to arrest and bring bound to Jerusalem, now he spends some days with there in the city of Damascus. I ask you a question. Why do you think it was necessary for Ananias to heal Saul? Why was it necessary for Ananias to be able to heal Saul, Paul, of his blindness? I think it goes back to Mark chapter 16 and verse number 20. Again, this goes back to the purpose of miracles in the first century and why we don't have miracles today, why they're not necessary today. In Mark chapter 16 and verse number 20, the Bible says that Jesus was working with them. This is after his ascension, but he's working with them and he's confirming their word through the signs. Why are miracles necessary in the first century? To confirm the message. To confirm the messenger. So Ananias is able to walk in and said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me, Jesus has sent me, that you might receive your sight. And he touches him, and, and Paul's blindness is taken away. I'm going to listen to this guy. I'm going to listen to what he tells me to do. It just confirmed that he was, in fact, sent by Jesus. He's able to perform this miracle. Again, did that save him? Was he saved at the point that he received his eyesight? We're still not saved yet. We're still not there. I find it very fascinating, very interesting, that... Jesus, I underlined it in my Bible, maybe you did in yours, in verse number 6, where Jesus says, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. What is the one thing that Ananias tells, Jesus, tells Paul he must do? What's the one thing that he tells him he must do? Baptism. That's the one thing. So, someone asks, honestly, sincerely, why did Ananias not say anything about believing in Jesus? Because Paul did believe in Jesus. He didn't have to. Sincerely, honestly, someone asks, why didn't Ananias say anything about confessing Jesus as Lord? Paul has already confessed Jesus as Lord. Why didn't Ananias say anything about repentance? Paul has already shown repentance, remorse, a willingness to change his life. And so Ananias didn't have to bring any of that up. Does that mean it's not important? Absolutely not. The Bible teaches all of that is important. But he's already done that. What has he not done? He's not been baptized. That's what he's told to do. Well, I see all of that in Acts chapter 9 and feel that we have not dishonored the text in any way by simply walking ourselves through it. 
But then I go over to Paul's own words. And I would encourage you to do the same if you're going to sit down and study with someone and, and go through the conversion of Saul. And again, I, I'm not questioning anybody's integrity. I'm not questioning their, their willingness or their desire to be right with God. But let's just find the pattern. And so I go to chapter 22. I think this is important because this is Paul now retelling the events. This is Paul's own mouth, so to speak. This is first person. Paul says, this is what happened. And so I'm not going to march all the way through this. I'm just going to see, show you a few things. Verse number 4. Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness in all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand by those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So here's the recalling of all of these events that we have just looked at from Acts chapter 9. Does Paul contradict any of it? No. The Holy Spirit inspires all of this from the hand of Luke. And so we find that all of these things happen. What does Saul say? I met Jesus and miraculously he spoke to me. What do we find in context? I confess Jesus as Lord in verse number 10. I recognized his authority. I recognized his lordship. What did Jesus say? He told me to go into the city and he would, he would be told me what I needed to do. And so I went into the city and I was blind. And a man named Ananias came and he laid his hands on me and I was healed of my blindness. You see, I recognize the authority of Jesus. I made a confession with my mouth that I believed him to be the Lord. I, I, I went and was in that city and we know that he showed remorse and he was re, uh, penitent and we understand that a miraculous uh, event took place in his life and yet none of these things in the end saved him. What did he have to do? Well, verse number 16. Ananias says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There's a pattern there, my friend. There's a pattern for salvation. There's a pattern for being saved. And we see it in Paul, and he said, the Lord will use me as a pattern for those who will come to believe in him for everlasting life. And if we follow the pattern, 
you and I can be saved. And if we follow the pattern, we can help other people to be saved too. Now that's taken a few minutes to explain this morning and to walk through together. But do you think you can take that and just sit across the table from someone and walk them through that? Does that seem overly complicated in any way? I'm telling you, if I can do it, I know you can do it. It seems simple. And we can look at this and we can help people go to heaven. Now, some people might ask about that calling on the name of the Lord, and isn't that a prayer? In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 26, 22 and verse number 16. Isn't that a prayer? And you say, well, no. What has Paul been doing for three days? Praying. Calling on the name of the Lord is, is responding to the Lord in obedience. It is doing what the Lord says one must do. What must I do? You must be baptized to wash away your sins. Paul was not saved until he was washed in the blood of Christ. Revelation 1, verse number 5. You might make that note in your margin. Revelation 1 and verse 5. We're saved when we are washed in the blood... He had his sins washed away as he called on the name of the Lord. These, uh, these papers find themselves right now on that table in the back on the second shelf under the Lord's Supper emblems. Take one, take two, take a handful, I don't care. And maybe it can help you, maybe it won't, but maybe it will. Just another tool that you might be able to use to help someone come to be right with the Lord. Here's a plan of salvation. I always, uh, when I preach, I like to show a slide uh, like this. I changed it this morning just to show different words of Paul. These are only words of Paul that he would say one must do in order to be saved. Do you have to be justified? Will faith justify? Yes, but a faith, that biblical faith, involves trust and obedience. Do I need to obey God? Yes. Do I need to trust God for who He is? Yes. And that will justify me. That will allow me to have peace with God. But you can't be saved, my friend, without hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. I need to believe the gospel. I need to believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. I need to believe in Jesus and what he has done that allows me to be saved. I'm not ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. You can't be saved without obeying the gospel. You've got to be willing to repent of sin. You know, it was Paul who said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul said that. Confess faith in Jesus? Yes, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's there in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And isn't it Paul who said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 26 that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? That sounds like you've got to be baptized in order to get into Christ where all spiritual blessings are found. Paul said that in Ephesians 1 and verse number 3. Yeah. Paul absolutely taught all of this as necessary to be saved according to the pattern because that's exactly what he did. To be saved. He's not teaching anything that he didn't do himself. Paul, do I need to remain faithful to Jesus as long as I live in order to go to heaven, even though I have obeyed all those other commands? 
Is it really necessary for me to remain faithful? Yes. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 2, he said, I, I, I presented to you the gospel, I gave you the gospel, in which you are saved, or you, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the words of life. Don't let go. Don't let it go. I believe it was Paul who said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 4, that you can fall from grace. We need to stand in the grace of God. We need to be faithful. I love the Apostle Paul. I know that you do too. I love the love that he had for Jesus. And he understood the need to be saved. Start, stops and starts, starts and stops with Jesus. I want to help people to know the same. This morning, have you followed the pattern? Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you right with God? Have you done something different? Have you done something in addition? Have you subtracted something from what the Bible says you must do in order to be saved? Are you right with God today? If you're not, won't you follow the pattern? Won't you come to obey Jesus? Won't you come to be right with Him? The chief of sinners was saved this way. I suppose if the chief of sinners was needed to be saved in this way, then, then the rest of us do too. This morning, maybe you're a child of God and you've not been faithful. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe there's something amiss in your life. Or maybe there's a need in your life that you'd just like your brethren to pray for you. Can we do that? Boy, we'd love to do that. If you need to respond to the invitation, the Lord's invitation is extended. Will you come while together we stand and while we sing?